0: As I said, we are beginning a new series today in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, you have Psalms, Proverbs, and then you come to Ecclesiastes. And uh, though I always have good intentions, uh, I will not be reading verses 1 through 11, but only verses 1 through 3 today. Uh, And mainly because I wanted this to be an introduction uh, to the book, and so there's background information and so on that we need to cover. So let's just today uh, hear God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Let's pray. Lord, as this is your holy, inspired, and inerrant word, we pray that you would speak through it today. Teach us what you would have us to to know About you, about ourselves, and about our life in this world as preparation for heaven and for eternity. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you've been around uh, for the last few months, you know I've preached through two small and neglected books of the Bible. Remember what they were? (laughs) Philemon and Jude. Well, today we're going to embark on another somewhat neglected book, uh, this time in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes deals with the great questions of life that all people ask, not just believers, but even unbelievers. Uh, Someone like Socrates, for example, before he was executed, made a statement. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. In other words, he would have said the examined life, a life where we practice self-examination, is worth living. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes goes further and asks whether life is worth living at all, whether examined or unexamined. Is there any meaning to life? Is there any purpose to our existence in this world? Well, we don't have to wait long in this book for an answer, because in verse 2, he gives us the answer, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. At least that is the author's initial answer. Is it his final answer? Well, you have to stick around uh, over the next few weeks to find out. Uh, You'll get some clues along the way. You'll get some clues and answers today, but... First of all, the question is, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Um, verse 1 identifies this person as the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so we start with the preacher. In Hebrew, it's the word koheleth. And it refers to one who is uh, a collector of sentences, a preacher, a public speaker, one who gathers an assembly uh, to address them with a message of some kind, like I'm doing today, and in fact, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, translates uh, this word uh, with, with a word that means that we use for church or assembly, ecclesia. Uh, and so, this word, Koheleth uh, is um, that of a preacher. And what is this preacher doing? Adam Clark in his commentary said he teaches us the true knowledge of God, number one, and then how men ought to pass their lives in this transitory world. And certainly that's true of any preacher at any time uh, in, uh, in life. That's what it, a preacher ought to be doing, giving you the knowledge of God and then how you are to live so as to please that God ...in this fallen world that we live in. Uh, verse 1 says uh, refers to the words of the preacher. Uh, you could translate that the preacher's sermon. In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes is a sermon. Uh, John Gill said, "...the whole book is one continued discourse, and an excellent one it is, ...consisting not of mere words, but of solid matter, things of greatest importance clothed with words apt and acceptable. So who is this preacher? Well, he's the son of David. He's the king in Jerusalem. His name does not appear, though, in in any of the the book, any of the pages of this book. Most of the older commentators uh, believe and have always believed and held. Indeed, the, the ancient Jews believe that it was Solomon. There's little doubt in my mind that it was Solomon. Uh, but some modern commentators will say, uh, well, he doesn't mention his name. And a son of David, well, that could be any of his descendants. We know it often that, that phrase is used for not just an immediate son, but uh, of other descendants. So Hezekiah was king in Jerusalem. He was a son of David. Uh, but there's a little clue in verse 12 of, of Ecclesiastes 1 that says, that the author, the author says, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Well, Hezekiah was king in Jerusalem, but he was king over Judah, uh, not Israel. Uh, so, but much other evidence in the book, along with, the, again, Jewish and Christian tradition, uh, point to King Solomon as the author. And what do we know about Solomon? Well, we know he was, was the son of David, and his mother was Bathsheba. We also know that he was the successor to the throne. Even though David had other sons, God appointed Solomon to be uh, David's successor. And God had told David that Solomon would build the house of God. This is one of the great uh, feats of Solomon. He did many other things. But God said to David in 1 Chronicles 22, 9, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. And, and indeed, that was fulfilled uh, with, in Solomon's reign. And He became king, uh, in, they estimate, between 16 and 18 years of age. And he began his reign, as, as you may know, with a prayer for wisdom. He prayed for wisdom from above that he might govern the people of God. Uh, And God was pleased with his request, and he he gave him wisdom uh, to lead the people of God. He gave him much more uh, in terms of wealth, many other blessings. And he did rule well over the nation, although he had difficulty, as we know, in ruling himself. Solomon probably wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. Jewish tradition says that uh, Song of Solomon was written in his early years, Proverbs in his middle years, and now Ecclesiastes reflecting on his life in his later years. And so the book seems to be an expression of his regret and folly uh, and the wasted time uh, due to his... Indulging in in carnality and idolatry, uh, which was uh, connected with the carnality. Because 1 Kings 11.4 talks about how this happened. Uh, How could a a man like Solomon, a man who was a a godly man in many ways, he's written several books of scripture, uh, how was he led into idolatry? It says, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God God as was the heart of his father, David. So God used Solomon and even through his weaknesses um, to teach us many lessons. And so some of the wisdom that God gave to Solomon was learned the hard way. And so... uh, You know, the good thing about Scripture is that we can learn from the Word of God so that we don't have to learn the hard way. Um, The Bible tells us uh, clearly and plainly about the wages of sin being death and that whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And we see it in Solomon. We see it in Ecclesiastes. Uh, So let's take heed. To what the word says, let's, let's don't try to reinvent the wheel because it's been tried. And, uh, it, 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 you know, as far as Solomon's life is concerned, um, we don't go there. Uh, don't do what he did. John Gill says uh, in his commentary, as to the time in which it was written by him, it seems to have been in his old age, after his sin and fall and recovery. And when he was brought to true repentance for it. So Solomon's advice to us is, uh, learn from me and from my mistakes. Repent now rather than suffer for delaying your repentance. Uh, Repent now. Repent today. uh, And be wise. So Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. It's in the wisdom genre. Uh, As are other books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and in the New Testament we would say James is in, in that category of wisdom literature. But what's the purpose of Ecclesiastes? Well, the purpose is to ask and to get us to think about the great questions of life. What's the meaning of life? What purpose is there in life? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Does anything in life matter? What happens after death? Is life worth living? Well, it's my conviction that if, if people today would read this book and absorb uh, its contents, that it would change their lives. It's exactly what happened to uh, my Hebrew professor that I had in seminary. His name was Dr. Alex Luke. He grew up. He was Vietnamese. He grew up in Vietnam and. One day, he found a tract based on the book of Ecclesiastes in a restroom. And he read that tract and was converted to Christ. He was one of the most godly men I've ever known. As he taught Hebrew, a third language, in his second language, English, first being Vietnamese. Brilliant man, but a godly man. So Ecclesiastes can change your life. And it teaches us that life without God, without the Lord Jesus Christ, is without meaning. It is without purpose. It forces us to face the vanity of life in order that we might turn in faith to God, the source of life. It shows us that life without God is is vain. It's empty. It it is meaningless, as some translations put it. doesn't matter what your accomplishments may be. And for Solomon, they were many. It uh, doesn't matter what uh, pleasures you experience. And again, Solomon had all the pleasure and more uh, that, that anyone could ever want. Without God, it is a mere waste of time. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is Vanity. It's all meaningless. That word vanity appears 37 times in the book. It appears five times in verse 2. So if you don't get the message, you see, uh, you're not paying very much attention at all. The Hebrew word for vanity is hebel, or maybe it's pronounced hebel. It refers to a vapor or a breath, uh, that which is fleeting. If you think about, you know, your breath on a cold day, you see it, but it dissipates, it disappears quickly into the air. It's it's emptiness, it's dissatisfaction, it's frustration, it's it's uncertainty, it's temporary, it's transitory, futile, it's senseless, it's absurd. And notice, again, the repetition of the word vanity and and the phrase vanity of vanities. The Bible uses that type of phrase in other places for emphasis. For example, the Song of Songs. Uh, Well, that's the best of all songs. There's the God of Gods, and that simply refers to the the greatest or the most high God. The the Holy of Holies, It's, it's the most holy, the holiest place in the temple. And so Vanity of Vanities... Refers to the utter pointlessness of life under the sun without God. This is, you see, the futility of a secular life. A, a secular person is someone who lives with reference only to himself and to mankind and what's on this earth. Uh, and a secular, man centered, worldly life has zero meaning. Now, of course, uh, such a person who is in that condition uh, without God, without the knowledge of God, will not admit that and tries to find meaning uh, apart from God, but it is not there. Robert Hawker, an older commentator, said that the great design which the Holy Ghost seems to have intended from the use of it in the church this book was to teach the emptiness and vanity of all things here below to satisfy the desires of immortal souls. It can't be done. The vanity of the things of this world cannot satisfy your immortal soul. So in this book, Solomon is going to take us down every path that man might take, and he's going to show us that every one of them are dead ends. Indeed, Solomon went down all those roads himself, and he knew by experience that they were dead ends. They led nowhere. So I ask you this morning, what is it that you are pursuing in life? What road are you going down with the hopes that that is going to bring some meaning and fulfillment and purpose in your life? Unless you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I will tell you that it goes nowhere. And it goes like the road we live on. Uh, It's paved up to our driveway. And then it's a dirt road after that. And it's just a dead end. There's nothing there. Well, Paul, the apostle, wrote this. He says, for me, to live is Christ. There is one path. There is one road uh, that does lead somewhere. uh, And it is to live in and for Jesus Christ. My own personal testimony is that uh, I did not think about anything in the future. I only lived for the moment. I never thought ahead. I simply lived for the temporary pleasures of sin until finally, uh, and and I can't say I did everything that Solomon did, but I did a lot of things. Uh, and enjoy the things the world had to offer. But the Lord showed me, and this is how He got my attention, He showed me that it was all empty, that it was all meaningless. And then the Lord revealed Himself to me, as I read the Bible, uh, that Jesus came that I might have life and have it abundantly. And here I was seeking an abundant life without Him, and and Jesus said, I will give it to you. And he showed me that, as he said in in, in the Gospels, that the one who seeks to find his life will lose it. And one who loses his life, for my sake, will find it. Everybody's trying to find their life, you know. But you have to lose it for and in Christ, and you will find it. I saw what... The missionary Jim Elliot saw when he said only one life to live and when it's passed only what's done for Christ will last. There's only one way to have meaning in life and that is to surrender it to Jesus Christ and to live for him. You and I can foolishly try and find fulfillment uh, in every worldly path or we can learn from Solomon uh, and uh, who, who ultimately found that all those paths uh went nowhere. So, have you found the road that leads to life? The Bible talks about it as a highway of holiness. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's good that we can read Ecclesiastes in light of the New Testament. Uh, we know more than Solomon knew. Although we know that Solomon saw uh, these things at least from a distance in the Old Covenant. And uh, there is a gospel tract that I have seen, uh, and it's, it's you know it's written as a, kind of a cartoon thing uh, where you have these two businessmen who are traveling to work uh, in the morning, and they're on a train together, and they're talking, they're having a conversation. And this gospel tract uh, is titled "Then What?" And uh, one man turns to the other in this tract, and and uh, says to him, he says, "Hey, I'm going back to school and I'm going to finish my degree." And and uh, the the other guy says, "Great." Then what? He says, "Well, I've got my, eye, you know, on the president's job." And you never know. And, and the guy says, oh, that's awesome." What? What? Then what? And he says, "Well, uh, with all the money I, I'm making, and then you know, I'll be able to, you know, uh, marry a beautiful girl and build a big house." And uh, he says, "Ooh, that's great." Well, then what? Well, then with all the uh, you know, then then with my beautiful wife, we'll have some amazing children and, and, and we'll send them to all the best schools and, and take expensive vacations. Oh, wow. Then what? Uh, you know, and he says, well, I suppose, uh, you know, after a while I'd ease into retirement and, uh, you know, spoil the grandkids, travel the world, you know, do the grandpa bit. And he says, perfect. Then what? Well, I suppose after, you know, after that... Uh, then uh, I, I would die, and I guess everybody would come to my funeral and say what a good person I was. He said, then what? Then what? And the track goes on, and there's a narrator who takes over, and he says, you know, most of us are like this man. He knew where he wanted to go in life, this short life, but he never stopped to think about where he would end up after this life in eternity. The Bible says a lot about how we are to live this life, but more importantly, it tells us how we can prepare for the next life. Are you prepared for then what? What are your plans? What what do you hope will come of those plans? And and do those plans uh, factor in eternity? As as you plan, do they factor in Jesus Christ and knowing Him and serving Him? In Christ alone is there meaning, purpose, and eternal life. Otherwise, it's all vanity and emptiness. I'm telling you things that you already know. But things that we need to be reminded of. Because as Christians, we know that the world still has a pull, doesn't it? Uh, it's still, uh, it still has an allure for all of us. But in verse 3, Solomon asks, he says, What profit is a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun and here we are introduced to that phrase under the sun he will use that very often in this book so God has given us he says labor and that's true God's given us work to do and we're created we're called even before the fall God gave Adam and Eve work to do in the garden Genesis two fifteen says God took the man and Put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. After the fall, uh, things changed. Man still has to labor. um, But Genesis 3, God says, Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. and the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So... You and I must do some sort of work, some sort of labor in this life. The fourth commandment tells us, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So we are called to work. But Solomon asked this question, well, what profit do we have in our work? Clearly, our ability to work in this world is one of the Good blessings. It was intended to be one of the good blessings of God, but sin has marred that. And, uh, you know, the famous uh, country song, you know, take this job and shove it. Uh, we we don't particularly uh, always enjoy our work, or sometimes we do the opposite. We see people who are workaholics, and and that's all they think about is work, or the money that they can earn from their work. And what they can buy with that money. But the curse has come upon all that God has made. And if we uh, if we fail to reckon with this fact, we'll either despise uh, that work or, or we'll worship uh, that work and the things we can buy. So it's interesting to think about, you know, to, today um, in our culture... Uh, we still do this very often, especially with men. You know, if you meet another uh, man, and you you ask, you know, the first thing you almost ask is, well, what do you do for a living? Uh, you know, uh, what, what what kind of work do you do? And Christians and non-Christians alike will ask that question when you meet someone for the first time. That tells us something about life. It tells us what we value. Uh, it tells us where we find our identity in life. You know. Um, and uh, I read this week that, uh, that Christians in the country of Uganda, uh, that when they meet someone for the first time, it doesn't matter who they are. In fact, they don't know the person. So uh, the, the first question they will ask is not, what kind of work do you do? But are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Because our identity uh, is either in Christ or out of Christ, and that's what really matters. And they, you see, the Ugandan believers understand time is short, they get to the point. You and I beat around the bush and hardly ever get to the point sometimes. The meaning of life is found only in Christ. Is our conversa- does our conversation uh, capture that? Does, does our conversation uh, demonstrate that that's what we believe? That life here and life in eternity is found only in Jesus Christ. Well, Christ once asked, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And that verse, before I was saved, really convicted me. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What about just a little bit of the world? It doesn't matter. If you lose your soul, you've lost it all. There is no profit in this short-lived life unless you come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. And James said in James 4.14, he says, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You see what James is saying. He's saying the same thing uh, that, that Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes. Our very existence is vanity. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's nothing. Unless we reconnect with God and have eternal life through faith in Christ. So do you know where you will spend eternity? Are you certain you have eternal life? First uh, John 5 tells us how we obtain eternal life. It says God has given us eternal life. So you understand it's a gift. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, do you have the Son? And the only way, you see, to have meaning and purpose in life under the Son is to know the Son of God. So, does life have meaning? Does it have purpose? Solomon's first answer is no. Nope. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. It's all empty. There's no meaning. Thankfully, he's going to give his final answer uh, somewhat throughout the book and certainly at the end of the book in chapter 12. And the final answer is that though there is no meaning in this life apart from God, there is great purpose and meaning in everything for the one who knows Christ. Uh, You know, often we 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 get bored. uh, We go through routines and, you know, it, it, it's, it's a tread, it feels like a treadmill sometimes. Same old, same old. And we wonder ourselves, you know, what's, what purpose does my life have? Well, we've, we've taken our eyes off Christ if we ask that question. So the final answer is, yes, there's meaning to life. And as Solomon will say, this is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Jesus once said, Well, you know, what's what what is someone asking, you know, what's the work of God? What what should we do that we could do the works of God? And he says, The work of God, the commandment of God is to believe in the one in whom he has sent. To believe in Christ, to come to know the Lord, and then to live for the Lord. That's the meaning of life. Christ came to rescue us from vanity. He took on all of the vanity and sin of this world so that we might have life abundantly and eternally. And so you and I who know Christ, the person who receives Christ, will experience not only eternal life, life in heaven, but life now. As we'll see in in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we can find purpose and meaning especially in the mundane and ordinary things of life. Today, it's really interesting, especially uh, young people are told, well, you need to be uh, you need to change the world. right? Listen to what Solomon says, and you will find that if you are changed, even the little things in life, the mundane things of this short life have great meaning. And maybe the world will be changed, maybe not, but you will be changed. Others uh, will see that and perhaps look to Christ as well. Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll continue uncover more verses as we go through at least uh, to verse 11. Let us pray. Oh, God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes. We know about it. We are somewhat familiar with it. Lord, I pray that we'll come to grips with it. Thank you for Solomon. We thank you for the greater one who is greater than Solomon who came, who is wisdom incarnate, who is life itself, who is the way to life. In his name we pray. Amen.